Downloads of the show are available at Podomatic.com or the Podomatic mobile app. This is a song from Matt Daly. Hey kids, you are listening to Radio Free Brooklyn, and this show is Fish Out of Agua with Michelle Carlo. Today is Tuesday, April 17th, 2018, and spring has finally come to New York City. If for a New York City minute, oh, oh, it was so wonderful while it lasted. And you know what? Why do I always talk about the weather at the beginning of each show? I just realized that as I'm giving you the weather report in New York City each week. And there's so many more important things to talk about, like our guest this week. You know, last week we had a guest that was in the Black Panthers when she was a teenager, or at least involved with the organization, not like in in them. And this week, our guest also has ties to that part of um, history. But you know what? I'm going to shut up and I'm going to let this song speak for it. Because you know what? What this song is talking about is in danger of happening again. back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. That song was Chicago by Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young from their Four-Way Street album back in 1971. And the song, for those of you you who don't know, uh, the Mayor Daly reference in the beginning of the song is the mayor of Chicago, who was Mayor Daly. And the song talks about the Democratic National Convention back in 1968. There was a lot of protesting going on there. People did not want Richard Nixon in office, and other things were being protested against. And the mayor just, like, basically let the wolves and the National Guard on people. A lot of people got their heads beat in. 
And that was one of the many straws that broke the camel's back back in 1968 and kind of like, you know, sparked that whole protest of Vietnam War and, and civil rights and, and women's rights and gay rights and everybody's rights that became known collectively as the movement, as the hippies among us will remember. Well, it's 50 years later and it seems like we're coming full circle today. Oh my God, I can't believe I'm playing hippie songs on the air. <laughs> Not that I have anything against hippie songs. Just, you know, I miss that generation. I, I miss that ride and it looks like I've lived long enough to see it happening again. Well, to that end, we're going to play another song from that exact time period. This one picked by our guest artist to open his episode. I like to do a song of great social and political import. It goes like this. Oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? My friends all drive Porsches. I must make amends. Worked hard all my lifetime. No help from my friends. So, oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? Oh, Lord, won't you buy me a color TV? Dialing four dollars is trying to find me. I wait for delivery each day until three. So, oh Lord, won't you buy me a color TV? Oh Lord, won't you buy me a night on the town? I'm counting on you, Lord. Please don't let me down. Prove that you love me and buy the next round. Oh Lord, won't you buy me a night on the town? Everybody, oh Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? My friends all drive Porsches. I must make amends. Worked hard all my lifetime. No help from my friends. So, oh Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? That's it. <laughs> A song of great social and political import indeed. That was Janis Joplin. Uh, the song is called Mercedes Benz, in case you couldn't figure it out. And it's from her Pearl album in 1971. So look at that. I said it was from the, the Chicago and this song was from the exact same, same time period. And I was right. And I wasn't even sure about that. Ha, I love when stuff like that happens. So yeah, I did not mean to impugn hippies or baby boomers before. I know what happened before was definitely important. We wouldn't have what's going on, you know, now, the changes that did happen in society now if it wasn't for the sacrifices that a lot of great people, very what we, we call now woke people, made back then. And it kind of does seem that, you know, we didn't learn anything from history last time, so we're going to repeat it again. It's like we're having our Saturn return. I'm not going to get all astrological on you people. <laughs> oh, look at the time. Hey, kids. It's time now for my favorite part of the show. Whoa, whoa.
Hey everybody, welcome to Fish Out of Agua's Guest Artist of the Week! Woohoo! I know, every week I say that the person sitting next to me is my favorite, but it's true, because everybody's my favorite. And this person is actually extra, extra special favorite because he's a writer, poet, activist, and well, why don't I just be quiet and let him tell you. Please welcome Bobby Gonzalez. Hello, Michelle. Thanks for having me on your show. It's great to be here. Well, who am I and what do I do? I'm a storyteller. I'm a poet. I'm a multicultural speaker. Yes, and an educator and an activist. Yeah, my mother, who spoke Spanish mostly, said, told me what the Spanish word for activist was. I said, what's the Spanish word for activist, mommy? And she said, troublemaker. Oh, my God, that's so funny. Troublemaker. <laughs> I guess that would go under Spanglish. Yes, yes. So um, I asked this question of everybody at the beginning. How and when did we meet? That's a good question. Let's figure this out in the air. Okay. I think we might have met through a mutual friend, maybe Robin Beatty. But also, it might have been through the stories. Uh, Bridget Bartolini has that, that five borough. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We, but anyway, we met. Yeah, and I worked, I, I started working with, I did programs with her in like 2012 and 2013. So it's at least um, six years. But I was aware of your existence before I met you. <gasps> Ooh. Someone showed me a photograph, an old photograph. And it was you and there was you were involved with a group of performers, all women. One was Rena Valentine, one was Alba Sanchez, and that was a long time and someone told me, Oh, that's that person that person I never met you and that was about 10 years ago someone showed me that photograph. I would bet my monthly MetroCard that that was a photo from a show that Linda Nieves Powell did mm. in the mid-aughts called Soul Latina. Marilyn Torres was in it sometimes, and Dacil Acevedo was in it sometimes, and Rina Dacil and uh, Marilyn, have, I've, I've interviewed them yeah. in, in the past, and Linda too. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I think I'm working through the Linda Nieves Powell list. But yes, that picture was probably from 2005 or six or seven. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So the arts. The arts. And people ask me, when did you become a storyteller? When did you become a poet? And I know the exact date when I really? became a poet. Well, we're going to get to that in a minute because I want to get back to the origins. Now, I know you're a native New Yorker, correct? Lived in the Bronx my whole life. Okay. Um, so that's the thing. Uh, you were born here? You knew Eurekan? Or yes. were you born on the island? Or no, were you one of those born, back and forth kids? No. Spent almost my whole life in the Bronx. That's why I have this peculiar accent. Oh, accent. I yeah. mean, when I travel around the country, I, I try to assume a generic accent. Let's hear it. And then I, I slip. cannot. And I say, can I have a cup of coffee? Yeah, that's it. Coffee is, 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 is that's people it. People look at me. But they said, no, keep on doing that. It's charming. We like it. Oh, God. But yeah. you know what? I kind of feel like if you're going to do the, not do, if you have a New York accent, that's what you have. But to me, there are certain words that a New Yorker, New Yorker, got it? New Yorker has to hit, and one of them is coffee. Well, I, got, I have one for you that I slipped out a couple of times. This is an old one. I like someone, jeet. Oh, yeah, yeah, jeet yet? Jeet. Yeah. Did you eat? And I told people a few years ago, PBS, 
which was still maybe in existence, I don't know, tomorrow, uh, had a show on regional dialects and, and accents. And they showed, they had these old timers from Brooklyn on the air. I'm not kidding you. They had to use subtitles. Because they knew that people in the West or in the South wouldn't understand half of what they were saying. And when I traveled down South, I make a great effort to speak slowly. Well, wow. old you're school. considered rude. Old Even young school. people today speak that way down south. So, let's hear a little bit of your non-New York accent. <clears throat> okay, I'll, I'll read from back in my book. Okay, Bobby Gonzalez seeks to empower his audiences by encouraging them to embrace their heritage and use this knowledge to create a dynamic future. And wow. It sounds like my radio voice. You know, yes, I'm going to say, my name is Bobby Gonzalez, and here now the news. <laughs> yeah. I'm dying to know, did you come from like a performative or writer-like family? Was, was your family creative? Or were you like the fish out of agua, the, the, the black sheep? Let me tell you something. People say, well, where'd you cultivate your performance skills? I once met a, an actor. His name was Luis Caballero. He's passed away since then. And that he, name sounds so familiar. He was from the Lower East Side. And he told me, Bobby, you and I went to the best training school for acting. We both worked behind the counter of a working bodega for 20 years. And that's the best training to be a performer. Because once you stand behind that counter, the show is on. That's you know? true. And that's where I cultivated... I sharpen my public speaking skills. Now, people say once in a while, Bobby, you speak beautifully. You're a natural public speaker. I said, no, I'm not. I had a severe stutter until my early 20s, like James Earl Jones, like uh, Winston Churchill and other famous people. They had the stammer that they had to work their way through, and that's what I did. You know, you couldn't pay me to talk, you know, in front of an audience? No way. But I overcame that fear. And people say, well, what'd you do? What worked for me was when I addressed an audience, I would look over their heads. And they swear I'm looking right at them, right into their eyes, but I'm looking over their heads. <laughs> I say, that's a good one. So what kind of kid were you? Were you a studious kid? Were you a reader? Were you the class clown? Did you run around the house with a hairbrush singing? Well, I was very shy, very timid, but... In the Bronx in those days, we had something called a stoop. What neighborhood were you in in the Bronx? I grew up in the Melrose Projects. Oh, wow, okay. In the housing project, so there's no AC. No, definitely not in public housing. we didn't housing. have computers, no games. No. All your entertainment was outdoor. And some famous people came from the Melrose houses. Uh, remember uh, Jimmy J.J. Walker from Good Times? Yes, Dynamite. Dynamite. Melrose. Wow. Uh, Bobby Sanabria, who's been nominated for several yes. Grammys. Yes, I, I interviewed his wife, Elena, um, last year. Okay, he's, he's not related to the musician, but there's, um, he came from Melrose, Willie Colon Jr. I've heard of him, who's too. He's a football player, and he has a Super Bowl ring. He came from Melrose. I left Melrose a long time ago, but it always comes back to me. One day, I received a phone call from the New York Times. I said, what do you want? You want to talk to me? Yes, we heard that you grew up in the Melrose houses. I said, yes. Who, who ratted? No. <laughs> I think it was my buddy David Gonzalez who writes for the Times. So this reporter said, listen, there's a, the new head of the NBA Players Union 
came from Melrose. Her name is Michelle Roberts, and she grew up in 320. And I said, wow. So you see all these people came from this housing project. And a lot of people put down the project saying, you know, it's a slum, it's a ghetto. And I said, no, some very fabulous people came from there. There's a woman who is now on the United States Supreme Court who grew up in the housing project. So Sonia Sotomayor, Sonia Sotomayor grew up yes. in the Soundview project. Yes. And she came out all right. Yeah. What project did uh, Mark Anthony come from? Oh, I don't know. Oh, that was in Harlem, too, in East Harlem. The one, the one um, the on 2nd Avenue? The one on 2nd yeah. Avenue by 110th Street, 111th no, Street? No, by 99th, 100th, 101st. Oh, okay. All right, he grew up there, and he still comes back every once in a while. By Lexington? The one on Lexington no, and 99th? the one near the <laughs> hospital. <laughs> we know all the projects. <laughs> oh, yeah. We have relatives in every single one. Just about. Just about. Yeah. Wow. So when you were a kid, did you want to be a performer or a writer when you were a child? Or is this something no, that, came, that, upon came, up, that came upon you later? Well, did anybody in your family have any interest in the arts? Was somebody a musician or a singer or had they wanted to I draw? Everybody, everyone was um, working class. But I remember the, the date when I became a poet. Hmm. February 9th, 1964. And let me tell you what happened on that day was that was momentous in New York City and in the country. Everyone turned on the television set to watch the Beatles on your television show. And you're not going to believe this. For that one hour, not one felony was committed in New York City. Wow. It's like the whole I believe world it. stopped. And then when the show's over, they turned it off and went out and do their uh, nasty things. But <laughs> the day after that happened, Millions of young people around the world went out and brought guitars, and like the Beatles began to write their own songs, and that's what I did. Wow. And did you grow your hair long, too? Relatively long, yes. You know, but I went to a Catholic school, so you couldn't grow it too long. Were you a teenager then? No. Mm, I wasn't quite 13 yet. Okay. Pre-adolescent. Pre-adolescent. But yeah, but junior high, like 7th grade, 8th grade? Well, in Catholic schools, there was no junior high. Oh, right. You went from, from kindergarten to eighth grade, and then you went straight right. to high school. Oh, so what school did you go to? School that no longer exists. I went to St. Adalbert School on 155th. Uh, it's gone. Then I went to Cardinal Hayes High School. Cardinal Hayes. I think a lot of famous people came out of there also. Bobby Sanabria went there. Uh, Wait, did you guys go together? Uh, I went a few years before mm. him. David uh, Gonzalez from the Times, State Senator Serrano, he and I exchanged stories about Cardinal Hayes, you know. So, but the most famous person who came out of Cardinal Hayes was George Carlin, the comedian. Really? But I'm not sure if he left of his own accord or he was asked to leave. Wait, he grew up, George Carlin grew up in the Bronx? Why did no, I not know this? No, he grew up in Upper Manhattan, and there was a large Irish community in the vicinity of Dykeman. Mm. That's but, like by Inwood. Right. But he went to Cardinal Hayes for a couple of years, and they said, okay, it's time to go. Wow. Wow. That is crazy. Okay, I want to get back to becoming a poet when you saw the Beatles. Now, I know that, that a lot of people would say that the Beatles being on the Ed Sullivan show that night was kind of like when the 60s really started because the Beatles changed music forever, and, like, culture changed with it. You know what I mean? I don't think the Beatles were actually the arbiters of the change, but they certainly, I think, were a catalyst. They were the arbiters of the, of the change. You think uh, so? Oh, yes. Uh, first the clothes, the hair. They introduced the Western world to uh, Indian music. Yes, that's true. Right. That's right. And they introduced the world to uh, half-forgotten R&B stars because they recorded songs by Chuck Berry, Little Richard, 
the miracles, and other people that they were a little passe, but they revived an interest in these stars. Okay, so uh, I'm like starstruck on the air. My eyes have like stars in front of them. Um, when, so did, did you go to an arts college, or did where did you did you have any any uh, okay. schooling after high school? What 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 did you do? I, I, went, I but I want to know everything about I like how you to became Manhattan who you were. College, where I majored in marketing. Don't ask me what. Why. Oof. But that was good because training because I learned to market myself. Oh, that's true. Because no matter how great an artist you have, you are, you have to learn how to market yourself. This is true. Okay. So okay, so you became a poet on February the ninth, nineteen sixty four. So. Right. What uh, what were you writing about, and how often, and how did that evolve as you got older? Well, it was only after in my 20s where I started to go off in a different direction. I heard uh, poets like the last poets, uh, the so-called beat writers, the beatniks, like Allen Ginsberg and that ilk. But I really didn't uh, go into performance poetry until... I guess 40 years of age, pretty late. Wow. You so know, what did you do in between in between uh, Manhattan College and uh, performing for 20 uh, years? What did you do for 20 years? <laughs> well, well for a lot of those years, I worked in a bodega. My oh, that's right. My family's bodega. And that's where oh, I Oh, your family owned, you were a bodega guy. Oh, yes. And I got some stories behind that. How many cats did you have in the bodega? We had just one. At a time? Well, that was inside the store. Oh, okay. So... This was the South Bronx, and back in the 70s, we uh, experienced a couple of big blackouts. Mm -hmm. And we were located near what we call in Spanish La Tercera, the Third Avenue Third Shopping Avenue. Center. So, so it was two big blackouts. One blackout, the cops did nothing. They were waiting for orders from downtown. What do we do? Because people were going into the stores, you know, help, helping themselves. Then they got the orders from downtown. Okay, go after them. And the cops broke into the sporting goods store and took out the baseball bat. The next day, if you were seen in the street with your head all bandaged up, we know how you, how you got that. Oh, my God. So, but the morning after one of those blackouts, a big truck pulls up in front of the store. And the guy comes in the store and said, who wants a grand piano? He had a piano in the had, back of the a, truck? He had a grand piano. Oh, my God. And we said, nah, 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 Have any guitars? You know, so, Yeah. Gives a whole new meaning to fell off the back of a truck. Right. Wow. I guess the most touching story from the store is one night it was winter. It was late about 10, 10.30. It was snow on the ground a few inches. And a woman comes in. She was homeless. She says, what am I going to do, Bobby? The shelters are closed. I'll freeze to death out there. And I thought from an I said, okay, a few blocks away is Lincoln Hospital. Go to the emergency room. Tell the, uh, the nurse, the attending nurse, that you don't feel good, you want to see a doctor. And she'll give you a number and tell you to wait. They won't call you for 12 hours. Oh, so snap. So you're in the ER with heat, a security guard, and a bathroom. And she came back the next morning. She says, Bobby, thank you so much. They still haven't called my number. Oh, my God. Oh, that is hysterical. So for the, the, the 20 years... Between, you know, your going to Manhattan College and becoming and doing performing and stuff when you were 40. So in that interim time, were you always writing still? Oh, no. Uh, writing once in a while. That didn't come to us 
after the age of 40, then it really came out. So what was the tipping point for you then? I became involved in my off hours in the Native American community. Mm. And Let's hear a little bit about that. I was one of the organizers for uh, the powwow in Inwood Park. And um, one day, one of the members of the, of the committee worked at the Museum of the American Indian and said, Bobby, do you want to go to the museum and tell stories about your people, the Taino? I said, sure, we'd love to. So this is my first storytelling gig. So I go there, set, set up, sit down in the chair with a group of children, and a film crew comes in. Keep in mind, again, this is my first storytelling gig. Wow, and what year was this? This was in about 90. Oh, wow, wow. So, and a film crew comes in. They said, we're from a TV show called Buen Dia Nueva York, Univision. And I said, oh boy, this is gonna be fun. Thank God it wasn't live. Once in a while, I would say, stop. Como se dice esta palabra en español? Okay, shoot. And oh then I my God! the interview. It was a lot of fun. And that's how I became a storyteller, you know, because of this experience at the Museum of the American Indian. Now, I want to backtrack a little bit. I want you to explain the significance of wanting to keep the, the memory of the Taino Nation alive, because some people might not realize who the, and what the Taino are in relationship to Native American culture and being Puerto Rican. Okay. The Taino are the Native people who discovered Columbus. The brother was lost, all right, he thought he was over in China or Japan, uh, which was then called the Indies. And he had on his person a letter of introduction to the great Khan, the great emperor of China. So the China actually are the native people of Puerto Rico, the Dominican Republic, Haiti, Jamaica, Cuba, and the Bahamas. And sometimes I'm asked, Bobby, how could you be Native American? Your name is Gonzalez. And I said, okay, here we go again. Where do most natives live? Number one, most natives now live off the reservation. Number two, more than 90% of Native Americans, more than 40 million, live in Central and South America and the Caribbean. They're not up here. But the Tainos, are, are, I thought they were all gone. I thought they were all dead. They also know that there were other tribes in the Caribbean. There were the, um, the Arawak and the Caribe. Okay. Correct? People say, well, are you Taino or Arawak? And I say, same difference. In the French and Spanish-speaking islands, we were called Taino. In the English-speaking islands, like Jamaica or Barbados, we were called Arawak, same people. Interesting. The Caribs were not cannibals. That's what they tell you in the history books. Uh, that was used as a legal pretext by the Spanish in order to enslave them. And within the last year, the Caribs reclaimed the original name, Calinago. Caribe was a name given to them by the Spaniards. And they said, nope, we're taking back our real name, Calinago. And the biggest group of Calinagos are in the island of Dominica. Have you heard that island? Mm-hmm. Okay. And there's a big group of people in the Bronx, about 100,000 of them, who are half Carib and half black. And they're called Garifuna. Garifuna. I've heard of that. And they come from Honduras, Nicaragua, but for some reason, over 100,000 now live in the Bronx. Beautiful place to live, you know. And I travel around the country lecturing, storytelling, and sharing 
the histories and tales of the people, the original people of the Western Hemisphere, or as we call it, Turtle Island. Wow, this is this is just such great work and such and so good to hear. Because why do you think that um, these stories aren't more widely known? What's your opinion on that? Well, there's been a big newspaper story going on in the Bronx, where in two instances principals forbid. Uh, teachers and students to discuss black history. Yes, there was one school where a kid's name was Malcolm Xavier, whatever his last yeah. name was, and he wanted to have Malcolm X on the back of his sweatshirt, and they wouldn't let him have it. And he's like, but that's my name. Yeah, that, that was one controversy. And the principal said, no, you can't teach black history. And How do you not teach black history month when everybody in, 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 in your school is black? That is just... Thank you. And that's why it's Who, so... Whose history is, is she supposed to be teaching? The Vikings? I please. Uh, I please. Well, it's they want to teach uh, Anglo-American, and so see, all um, history needs to be taught. Everybody's everybody to be shared. That's why they this big lawsuit down in Arizona, where they had tried to outlaw uh, Mexican studies. You know, and there's a big, and then you know, in different areas of the country they ban certain books, like the People's History of the United States. They yes. want you know. And sometimes I go to these schools, colleges, and the students don't know what I'm talking about. And I've been told where they're a product of standard education, standardized mathematics, standardized English, standardized history. So that you have to make that extra effort to learn your own history and the history of other people. Yeah. You do, because nobody is, is going to tell you, you know, what, what you were taught for, like, the whole time you were in school was wrong. Wow, that's crazy. That, that's just an eye-opener and an ear-opener and a brain-opener. So when you became a performer again at the age of 40, how did you break into it and where, and where, where did you go and how, how, did you know, how did you know where to go? Was there a, one person or someone that was instrumental in getting you into that world? I didn't go. I was taken. You were taken. Oh, let's hear uh, about this. One day I found myself talking with some other Native American poets and I said, you know, we've never had a Native American poetry program. So I said, well, there's the New York Poets Cafe. Let's ask them. And it was a different day and age. In those days, you could call up and just walk in and say, can we do a show? Yeah, sure, no problem. What day do you want? You know, That's changed now for different reasons. And um, well, when was this? Was this in the early yeah. 90s? Yep, in the early 90s, the first Native American program uh, of poetry at the New York Poets Cafe. And I went, I told, I did poetry readings in different libraries. We also did storytelling as well. And then someone said, you should try the colleges. And this was pre-computer days. You could identify with this, being a performing artist. I would mail out press kits to the colleges. So now you can just email your, you know, your, uh, your package to promote yourself, except for one thing. I've spoken with directors of student activities who told me, Bobby, every day I receive 100 emails from oh, yeah. different performers. Because everybody has an EPK, electronic press kit. I'm actually making one for myself now. And you, and you also need to utilize social media. Yes. Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter. Well, Twitter didn't exist until 2009, I think, about 10 years. To, to contact all the schools, I'm not telling you any more of my secrets. <laughs> People say, Bobby, so... How did you get this work? And I said, 
I don't, you know, it comes to me. It comes but, to you. Uh, but also, I've been cultivating personal relationships for many years. Once in a while, I will hear from a, a director of student activities who said, who calls me and says, Bobby, I saw you when I was in college. Now I'm the director of student activities. I'm bringing you in. I said, sounds good to me. So, so far, I've sat down and figured out recently, I've been to 42 states, including Alaska and Hawaii. Not Hawaii, excuse me. Alaska and Mississippi. Wow. Hawaii I'm working on. And Mississippi was an eye-opening experience. I went there. Well, first of all, I walked through the front gate of the university. I said, well, that's progress right there, University of Mississippi. And then they told me, oh, yes, uh, we have an LGBT club. I said, you have an LGBT club at the University of Mississippi? Yeah, yeah. And we also have an ongoing dialogue on campus about Black Lives Matter. And I said, wow, we've made a lot of progress. We're make, we've made a lot of, lot of great positive changes. So this is happening right at now? University of Mississippi, they're having an ongoing dialogue on campus about Black Lives Matter. All right? And a few years ago, uh, oh, well, I was there. On the campus is a statue of James Meredith, and he was one of the civil rights workers who was killed. And a few months before I went there, someone snuck on campus and wrapped the noose around the statue's neck. Ideal. But listen to this, how, how times have changed. And while I was there, they sent the man to jail. And I said, see, back in the days, they would have either, either let him go or gave him a medal. Um, but now yes. they sent him to prison. Wow. Well, that's good. So a, a, one small sliver of justice in a world that hardly has any. That didn't make the news here. There's a lot of great things that happen like that every day. That don't make the news, yes. That don't make the news. And that's why I tell people, be very careful what news sources you utilize. Okay. And don't believe anything I've just told you. Mm -hmm. Go out. And find and out for yourself. Find out for yeah, yourself. Yeah, yeah, it's like there's yeah, a lot of fake yeah. news out there. Yes, yes, there is. Um, well, this is not fake news. Um, you are currently married to a writer, educator, and philanthropist, uh, Maria Aponte, who we interviewed last season. Um, do you get to collaborate with her a lot? Uh, how did do you guys work together? How does no, how does that? Very rarely. She does do you, her thing, and I yeah, do so, mine. So your work doesn't influence each other. Or, I mean, or, we've influenced She says, "Okay, Bobby, edit this." <laughs> is she going to be okay with that? Uh-oh, Maria. Tell, <laughs> no, let, let me tell you something for those of you out there who want to be writers. You need a good editor. Yes, even, absolutely. Even Hemingway and F. Scott Fisher, all those big writers had a guy named Max Perkins as their editor. She showed me her stuff, and I said, okay, that works. I thought, nah, you don't need all these adjectives. So that's how I help her. And last night she helps me. I was sitting around the house doing nothing. She says, what are you doing? Go write that next book, all right? <laughs> I said, yes, ma'am. And then you did it. Yeah. How many books do you have at present? I have to think. Okay, one, two, three, four, three full-length poetry books and one chapter. How old were you when you published your first book? I was in my 40s, early 40s. And it was called, a chapter called The Puerto Rican Indian Wars, Part 2. And then I did one book of poetry, which, which some people didn't care for the title. It was Song of the American Holocaust. 
Oh, oh. I, I can see how that would be controversial. Yeah. And then I did The Last Purple Indian, a collection of dangerous poetry. And then uh, my last one, Taino Zen. And Maria's saying, all right, where's the new one? And it's a different day and age, so now you can write a book and publish it yourself. Yes. Yes. A lot of people self-publish. That's fantastic. I'm so glad that the industry is now opened up because there used to be such a stigma to self-publishing, and now I feel like that's kind of like gone away. And there's fewer and fewer bookstores. Yes. All right. Yeah, we know that. Every day, so you got to hustle. So would you say that the bulk of your work is education and activism, or do you do more performing, like at, at, at like festivals it's and stuff? It's a good question. Um, both, because I educate people while I entertain them. So sometimes people say, you know, Bobby, that lecture was actually a, a theatrical history class. I said, yes. You know, I was influenced by George Carlin, so I can go up there for an hour and tell you all about what happened with the Native Americans still going on today, do it in a storytelling format, and entertain people at the same time. Now, what was it about George Carlin that, uh, that, made you, that resonated with you? He had no fear. He, didn't want, he wasn't afraid to hurt people's feelings. Yeah, he, he, he gave no f- Oh, yes. This is- <laughs> no, he, he gave no give fucks. <laughs> and, but he had to go through a transition because when he first started, he had short hair. He had to go on stage with a tie and jacket, and he was very straight. And then one day he developed an act called the Hippy Dippy Weatherman, where apparently he was high on some substance and gave the weather report. And then that grew and grew and grew. And you are, you've done one woman shows? Yes. Oh, okay, so you know how hard it is. Yes. He would spend a year just writing the show. And I've never seen him in person, but I would see him perform live you know, on, on YouTube, on tapes, and I said, how does he memorize all that? But that's theater training. I know some performance poets who think they're actors, and I shake my head. I said, no, you need years of training. You cannot call yourself an actor. So if someone asked me, Bobby, do you want to be in, in this play we're giving? I said, no, I don't have any theatrical training. Now, if you want to go up there and read a poem or two, that's fine. I'll tell a story. But I am not an actor. I have a lot of respect for that profession. Well, what if somebody had was doing a film and they said, Bobby, we want you to play yourself? Well, that's different. Okay. Well, I wouldn't be acting. Right. You know, right. You'd just be being. I would just be And that's be the be best myself. kind of acting, because you're yeah. supposed to be just being and not acting, whatever. That, that's that's whole thing about uh, acting philosophy. Yeah. <laughs> so get, going, going back to, to poetry. So uh, and. Going back to the conversation about not being an actor and not being trained, do you what do you think about um, poets that have in their delivery what I guess I would call poet speak, like that certain cadence, like I looked, but you were not there, and you were the light in the room, and anyway. Well, th- during the last few years, I've been giving classes called Spoken Word One Hundred and One. Oh, let's hear about oh, this. Oh, yes. And I told them, this is my perspective. I told the, um, the people who come to my workshops. By the way, I told them, I'm not here to teach you. We are here to learn from each other. And the reason why I ask this is because 
I don't go to poetry readings often, I will admit, but I do have a number of friends who are, so occasionally I will be at one. And invariably, my friend is the best one there, not just because they're my friend, but because many of the performers sound the same. They, they just sound the same, whether it's male, female, what, whatever. They just sound young, old. They, they, it's like they think that they need to sound a certain way to be a poet, and that's the way they sound. Well, I, I, I tell uh, the people who come to my workshops, you have to find your voice both written and spoken. And I also remind them that every audience is different. And some audiences, you can't read your X-rated material, you will, you know, hurt, uh, people will get upset. And also I said, there's three things you have to do before you, you can become a real poet. Those three things are read, read, read. And I've met a number of young poets who said, well, I don't read. And I said, yeah, and it shows. Oh, snap. And you could say that to becoming a writer too. Yeah. Or an actor, anything. Music would be listen, listen, listen. Listen, listen, listen. Right now I'm reading a biography about Jimi Hendrix, and he listened to everything when he was growing up, you know. And you have to absorb all these different influences, not just the community that you grew up in. Yeah, you have to, you have to get outside yourself. You have to get outside of your little bubble and experience the world a little bit. Right, so I'll come into a workshop and I'll read them some 1,000-year-old Chinese poetry. And, but I won't tell them it's a thousand years old. And I said, when do you think this poem was written? I don't know, last year? I said, no, a thousand years ago. But people are, haven't changed. People are people. Right. So you, a little pescal, I say a little pescal, I don't say a little birdie because this is the fish out of Agua show. A little pescal says you have something to read for us today. Oh, okay. And I was thinking, what should I read? I know what. Well, I'm... you have two books here with you today. Why don't you tell us what they both are? Well, one book is called The Last Puerto Rican Indian, uh, a collection of dangerous poetry. And when did that come out? That's a good question. Oh, look at the front. And the year is 2006. This is and it's in a quite handsome leather book cover. Well, let me tell you, I don't know his name, but this was created for somebody for me. It looks hand-stamped and well-worn well and beautiful. He was, he was incarcerated, and he made this in prison, and I still haven't found out his name. Wow, what a gift. Yeah, okay, so this poem is called Above the Fire, and it was written to honor the women in Native spirituality because women were important in our spirituality and still are, but once the Europeans came with their Christian machismo mentality, that put a stop to that. So I wrote this, Above the Fire. Solemn observance. The sun hangs low in the sky as they set out. The sun, the great eye of the creator. They bear objects of veneration, sacred stones, blessed feathers, hollowed blood. Ceremonies rooted in ancient times. Ceremonies sensitive to the seasonal turnings of the earth. Secrets unveiled in silence and in solitude. The powers of the mountain are invoked. A young apprentice is initiated by the giver of life. A worthy woman stands in the heart of a dimly lit chamber. With arms raised to the heavens, she intones a chant so powerful that the floor of the forest reverberates. The open circle of four converges on the flames that consume a mosaic of offerings. 
These selected men pay homage to the clear-eyed daughter of the traveling moon. The communal dance fulfills a cycle of rediscovery. Age-old stories are retold in whispers. And the life of one more generation is sustained as the smoke rising from the mounds of dying embers purifies the walls of the voiceless cavern. And the stars stand guard over the enchanted dawn which awakened on the cloud that rises above the fire. Snap, 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 snap. Do you know the organ of the snap? No, I just know that people do it. Okay. See, I, 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 um, I admit, I admit when I don't know something. I mentioned earlier the beatniks. Now they became, they began to emerge in the late 40s, early 50s after World War II. And they would read their poetry in coffee shops, which were in residential neighborhoods. So if someone would read a great poem and people would applaud loudly, the neighbors began to complain. That's where they started the snapping. Oh, ha! Huh. Now I know where that comes from. Yeah. That is amazing. The Education of Michelle Carla by Bobby Gonzalez. Um, can you read us a, a poem from Taino Zen? Since you insist. I insist. Okay. This is, also needs a little explanation. Uh, and when was this published? This is where Maria gets on my, my case. You need a new one. 2014. Not oh, new. That's it. New wish. So, do you know what Quechua is? Who? Quechua. Okay, I guess not. Is, that, is that an indigenous tribe? It's the language of the Sorry, people I... in the native people of Ecuador and Peru. Do you know what Yoruba is? Yes. Okay, that's a language also West Africa. So, gentle teacher. She speaks in English. She sings in Spanish. She dreams in Quechua. She cries in Yoruba. Gentle teacher with songs that speak to the heart. Very often I have words for her, and she listens most carefully to what I am not saying. Woman listens to my deep silences. Gentle teacher looks at me with eyes of panther, mystic smile, a face of tears. Gentle teacher asks, what is death? Que es la muerte? All it takes is one quick step and one short breath. Time to go, time to let go. Dreams that flow clearly and languages that float away. Leaving a taste on the tongue, a taste of cold, pure water. She sings in Spanish. She speaks in English. She dreams in Quechua. She cries in Yoruba with songs that speak to the heart. Gentle teacher. Wow. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. So if people want to follow you or if they want to know more about your powwow in Pelham Bay Park, when is, when is that one... That's later this year, correct? Uh, that will be on Sunday, September 30th at Pelham Bay Park, right outside the train station on the 6th train. Also, a date to be announced. I also will host the Native American Powwow at Fordham University in November. Fantastic. Now, if people want to know about your appearances in the New York City area, where can they find that out? They can go to my Facebook site. Aha! And my name there is Bronx Taino. Bronx Taino. Okay, and do you have Instagram also and Twitter that people can, uh, I know you do. No, no, no Instagram. No, he's got, he's got a flip phone, people. The, the Taino poet has a flip phone. I have a... Uh, Are you on Twitter? I'm on Twitter, I'm on LinkedIn, and Facebook. I asked this question of everybody when we closed the interview. Uh, so if you were, and you were, if you were to say one thing 
to a young person who wanted, who had a burning desire to do something with his or her life that society thinks that they don't have the right to do, or they have the audacity to want to be creative and, and things are against them, what would you tell them? I would tell them, number one, honor your ancestors. Always keep in mind that many of them died in order for you to be able to do what you want to do, open the doors. I remember uh, my parents, they, they came here in the late 40s, didn't know a word of English, had no money, hardly any education, and put all three of us through college. So I said, be true to yourself, be true to your family, your ancestors, and always remain, remain connected to who you are and where you came from and be proud of that. Wise words from a wise man. Respect your elders and respect the youth because everyone has something to teach and everyone has something they need to learn. Thank you for being on Fish Out of Agua, Bobby. Thank you, Michelle. Hug on the air. Hug on the air.
And we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. After Bobby's interview, you heard a little chorus of frogs. Bobby, I tried to make them as close to coqui frogs as possible, but I couldn't find them in a free sound effect. So just imagine they're coquis. And after the coqui concert, we heard in what is, in my opinion, one of the trippiest songs ever. Tomorrow Never Knows from the Beatles Revolver album back in 1966. I love that song. It's like, I don't know, it's just like, it's it's more trippy than Burning Man, I, in my opinion. Anyway, whatever. <laughs> so kids, guess what? That's our show. You have been listening to Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. And if you like this show or any of the other fine shows that you will hear on Radio Free Brooklyn at any time during the day, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, why not sponsor us? It's easy. Just go to the Fish Out of Agua website, fishoutofagua.org, fishoutofagua.com, and look for the donate button, click on the menu, drop down, and you know the rest. Give, give, give. Support living artists because it's important. Well, I want you to stay tuned for Brooklyn Bandstand next. And we are going to close with another of Bobby's picks. This one is trippy in a different way. This one is jazz trippy. It's from the jazz great John Coltrane. The song is called A Love Supreme Part 1. And it's from the album called A Love Supreme in 1965. All right, kids. Get outside and play. Enjoy the spring. <laughs> yeah, whenever it comes. And we'll see you next week. Woohoo!